Hey, Westside family, Jake Gilbert here, one of the leaders in charge of our media department. Thanks for joining us for today's message. We hope you are blessed by what God has been speaking to us through our pastors and leaders, and we pray this leads you into an even more intimate relationship with Jesus. We love you guys, and enjoy. Not last week, the week before we started a series called This Is The Way, uh, kind of referring to the Mandalorian series on TV, uh, because uh, as I said, and, and very briefly, you know, when you get inside this series, he, he and any other Mandalorian had a specific way to live, and this way he lived uh, allowed him to do what he was called created position to do, however you want to look at that. I want to say this before I get started. Uh, whenever I do a series that has a movie reference to it, I'm not making light of the scripture. I am not putting scripture on the same level as a movie. Jesus, in he, when he taught, he used modern-day parables to bring across the point and to create an understanding in people's minds so that they could receive the word and apply it to their life. And anytime we use a movie, we use a move, uh, music, or if we use a prop, I hope you realize that all it is is a modern-day parable, that by, by no means are we degrading God's uh, sacred text, his absolute word, uh, by applying modern versions of storytelling. I've had people gripe and complain, not this time around, but in the past. I've had people gripe and complain about using uh, modern, uh, you know, modern creations like movies to uh, tell a story or to teach the word. And if you have a problem with that, I'm sorry. It's not done to offend you by any means. But I do want, I do want to express we are not degrading God's word. It is absolute. It is all power. It's what we live by, and it's what changes lives. Amen? And media just kind of hopefully can give us some insight to have a bit of an understanding with whatever scripture we're talking about. So today I'm, 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 I'm going to teach uh, and we're going to look at something a bit deeper, but we're also going to start in a process of something that's very practical. <clears throat> I won't finish this today. I'll finish it next week because there's 12 points uh, after my introduction that I got to talk about. So you are welcome. You're welcome, Lorana, because whenever she hears me say I have a whole lot of points, she gives me the big Wi-Fi's. Not Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi's. You guys, you know what Wi-Fi's are? Yeah. Sometimes they're sexy, sometimes they're scary. I don't know. <laughs> when they're in church, they're not sexy, they're scary. <laughs> Get over it, all right, if you're offended. But anyway, uh, let's move on. I'm thinking about the sexy eyes right now. I just need to move on. If I think about <laughs> If I think about that too long, church will be five minutes and me and my family will be out of here. All right. Yes, ma'am. She just said stop it. Yes, ma'am. I'll stop it. All right. <laughs> to understand the importance of this message, uh, the introduction of this, in order for us to get to understanding the, the, the 12 ways, the better title of this would be the 12 ways. Uh in order for us to get 
to a true understanding of the 12 ways, we're going to have to go back a little bit. And this is my introduction. And we have to look at the temples, God's dwelling places on earth. So in scripture, you basically have seven dwelling places for God's presence on earth. The seven temples, they're not always called temples. So the first one, we have the Garden of Eden. It was a place where God dwelt amongst two people. The second was what is called the Tent of Meeting or also Moses' Tabernacle. It's what God instructed Moses to establish and create, and it's where God met with Moses. Uh, It's where Joshua, the replacement of Moses, went in and experienced a level of God's presence that he did not experience outside of this tent of meeting. The third one was unofficially uh, a tabernacle called the Tabernacle of David. Uh, It's a place to where David brought the Ark of the Covenant, but yet not all the other articles of the tabernacle for specific reasons, but yet it is a place to where God's presence uh, dwelt. The fourth one is the grand one. It's the one that you you hear the most about. It's called, and then you get into the reference to temple, and it's called the Temple of Solomon, and it was the most grand. It was the most elaborate. It it, it was absolutely a... a, uh, uh, I'm going blank on the word. I won't wonder. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world that was destroyed. Destroyed, and then we come to the fifth one that was supposed to replace Solomon's, but it never met the mark. It wasn't what Solomon's temple was, and it did not house the presence of God like Solomon's temple did. And it is called the Temple of Herod. And then we have the sixth one, and the sixth one we see established in uh, the second chapter of Acts, and it is God's people, because in the second chapter of Acts, when uh, the followers of Jesus was praying, there came the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and the Spirit of God filled them, and in Scripture, in New Testament Scripture, it says that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost, so that's the sixth one. And then we have the seventh one, which also is in the second uh, uh, chapter of Acts, and it is the church. It is the second body of God's people. So the first body of God's people is us as individual temples. But then when we come together, what we form is a greater body, and it's actually called the body of Christ. So when we come together, we do not come together. We are not just individual temples. We are the temple of Christ's body. And when we come together, there's greater power. There's greater glory. There's greater moves of God. There's greater power. There's greater revelations. Because the body we make together, the body of Christ, as a temple is greater and more powerful than we are as individual temples of the Holy Ghost. I have experienced God move in my life as an individual temple of the Holy Ghost. But what I've experienced God do in my life as an individual temple has not compared 
to the capacity or the power of God moving when I collectively join together with other temples to form the one great temple, which is the body of Christ here on earth. Does that make sense? That's one of the reasons why church is very, very, very important. Because collectively, we form the seventh temple of God for his presence here on earth. Each one of these places uh, was a chosen place for God to dwell, for God to move consistently, and the word here is consistently. There is always exceptions to the rule where God will move in a different way. God will move somewhere somewhere else, but that is not consistent consistently God showing up God moving consistently has always been based off of one of these seven temples now six and seven are very 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 important because it's where God dwells now God today dwells in us moves in us manifest through us, we as individuals are the light of the world. But also today, God moves when we are together as one and we form the body of Christ. And like I just said a minute ago, we are more powerful together. In fact, the Bible even says in Matthew Uh, 1820, that when two or three come together, I am in their midst. Now, when you look at Acts 2 and the end, the the, the end of Acts 2 is where we're going to be focused today. When you look at the end of Acts 2, or when you look at Acts 2, excuse me, in in, in my opinion, and this, this is very debatable, but in my opinion, Acts 2 is one of the most important and one of the greatest chapters uh, definitely in the New Testament, but I will also say possibly in the entire Bible. Because what you see in the act in, in the chapter in, in chapter two of the book of Acts, sorry, getting getting a little getting a little bit scribbly in my head. What you see is the formations of the latter two temples for God to dwell and manifest here on earth. You see the sixth, which is his people, and you see the seventh, which is his church. Now what's very interesting is the seventh temple correlating with the number seven. So when you look at the number seven in Scripture, the number seven in Scripture means the fullness of or the completion of. So the seventh temple, the seventh place for God to dwell and manifest here on earth is the completion or the fullness of His will in regards to his plan for he himself to manifest 
in and on this earthly realm. The seventh, are you hearing me this day? Are you hearing me today? I told you I'm going to go a little bit deeper first. The seventh <coughs> temple is the church. Number seven means fullness or completion. It was always God's will when he developed the earth, when he spoke it and he created it, for it to be a place that he would manifest himself. But yet over years and decades and centuries, it changed. But we have come to the last place before he returns to where he is going to manifest himself. And there is a prophecy saying that the latter rain will be greater than the former rain. Now, when this prophecy was spoken, they thought that it was meaning the temple of Herod. Because this prophecy was spoken in between the time that Solomon's temple was destroyed and Herod's temple was built. And there was a prophecy saying that the latter rain will be greater than the former rain. But after the development and the function of Herod's temple, the rain and the presence and the power of God that was supposed to be in that temple was never greater than the presence and the power and the manifestation of God in Solomon's temple. So it wasn't that that prophecy was in error. It just was not uh, what people thought it was going to be. So that teaches us that the latter reign of God's presence in a temple was not for Herod's temple, but it was for another's temple. And we know the latter rain in the sixth temple was not going to be greater than the reign of God in Solomon's temple because us as individuals cannot contain the greatness of God's power like we can when we come together collectively. So what we know through prophecy and through what has not happened is the latter rain will be greater than the former reign, not through Herod's temple, not through us as a temple, but through us as a church, the last temple, the last area that God is going to manifest himself here on earth before he comes back for his children. Come on, are you breathing this morning? This is good news. It means that the prophecies are right. It means that the word that there's going to be a last day revival is accurate because I've questioned them. I've challenged them. Just because someone says, thus says God, doesn't mean that I think, oh, that's, that's something from God. I challenge, I challenge the prophecies. I challenge the spirits. And the Bible teaches us to do that. But through my studies and through my prayer, this is what I've come to. What I've come to is the last temple, the seventh temple, is the last place for God to dwell upon the earth. And in that temple is going to be a latter rain, and it's going to be a greater rain than any other temple that has preceded it. The church. One of the reasons, and we can go through a whole list of reasons, but it's one of the reasons the church is so important. 
It's one of the reasons that the devil fights the church so hard. It's one of the reasons why the devil doesn't want you to come to church and on a consistent basis. It's one of the reasons to why the world and the media and anything that opposes God absolutely 100% opposes the church. Because the enemy knows the church is the greatest temple of God that has ever existed. And it's God's plan and it's God's will for him to manifest himself himself in the last days for those who are dying and going to hell to come to the knowledge, the awareness and the belief and the experience of Jesus Christ. So the reason I'm having to say all this before I get into this is because of the ways, because of structure, because of order. Each temple, all seven temples, had and has, hasn't, uh, 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 past and present, had and has a specific and distinct order to function as a temple. They had distinct articles within their structure. They had specific processes. There were certain ways that the priest of the temples, from Eden all the way to the church, certain ways that they had to live, certain things that they had to do in order for God to move inside that temple. One of the reasons Herod's temple was not so great is because it did not do and it did not fulfill the order that the temples preceding it had completed. If we as a temple of the Holy Ghost do not live a certain way, do not act a certain way, do not think a certain way, does not make certain choices, then we within ourselves will have a lack of God in us. Doesn't mean we're not saved. I'm not saying that. And it doesn't mean we're not going to heaven. I'm not saying that. But there is a difference than you, uh, uh, in one of us going to heaven and one of us being filled with the almighty power and presence and spirit of almighty God. You can be going to heaven but not have a lot of God in you. Come on, are you breathing? But you can also be going to heaven with a whole lot of God in you. And all that's based upon how you function and the order of you as an individual temple. Not all churches are equal. Some churches are just dead. All you have is religion. All you have is the control of a man. All you have is either a pretty building or an ugly building. There are some churches you walk into and their size doesn't matter. Their performance doesn't matter. But you walk into this church and you're like, hmm, I feel something here. And it can be a storefront building with 12 people. 
Or it can be a massive building with 5,000 people. What makes the difference is the order of that temple. And what determines the order of that temple is how the head of that temple leads that temple. If the head leads that temple according to the order that God has established for that temple, then that temple will be a place to where God's presence can come and go and move and be consistent. But if a head leads that temple in opposition to God's will and God's way, guess what? The presence of God is going to be a hit and a miss. I preached a, a church once, and I think I might have shared this, so if I did, just, 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 just deal with it. I, it was supposed to be a Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, back, back in the day in my 20s. I went there, and I spoke Friday and Saturday, and it just stunk. I couldn't even speak. Like, I was, stutter, I, I was like stuttering. I couldn't get my thoughts out. It was horrible. Like, within five minutes, I wanted to go back, I wanted to go back home. And like, that, that, what is going on? And, and, and you know, and, and to make matters worse, it was the very first time that my dad's mom ever heard me speak. It was a church that she knew of and close to where she lived. And, and I got back, to, and I, we were staying with her and got back to her house. And, told, you know, I was like, what is going on? Like, I've done, by this time, I had done tons of revivals and meetings and all sorts of stuff. What in God's name is going on? Two nights in a row, I couldn't minister, I couldn't preach. Come Sunday morning, all of a sudden, it was like, boom, the Holy Spirit just hit. And I got back into my natural like, like flow of ministry. Sunday night was kind of in between. And it kind of complexed me. What was going on? What, what is humbled me number it definitely humbled me and caused me to really realize that hey Jonathan you can't sp- you can't speak work the darn if you don't have the holy ghost long story short come to find out the pastor was having an affair and it was somewhat out in the open so friday and saturday night there was no move of god because how the priest of that temple had been living his life but Sunday morning, the place was actually like packed out. So what happened? The Spirit of God overrode the leadership of that priest and moved because of the need of the people. And God moved. Right? That's why I say, if you have a priest, a high priest over a temple, a pastor or an apostle over a church, and they don't lead it accordingly, you will consistently have those kind of experiences to where God just doesn't show up more times than not, and then every now and then you might have God move. But if you have a leader that is leading that temple according to God's will and way, then you will consistently have God moving, God blessing, and lives being changed. Doesn't mean you don't have any little down spells. It doesn't mean you don't struggle or battle because we do. Amen. But consistently, overall, more than not, you will have God moving in that temple. Because it's put into 
the right order. Now, what's very interesting, you come to the end of the book of Acts, and you see the establishment of the seventh temple. And this is verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And when you begin to break this down, for me, this is extremely interesting. What you come across is 12 ways that the seventh temple must function by. 12 orders that must be in operation in this seventh temple. Now, when you look at the number 12 in Scripture, you have the number of order and or the number of government. There was 12 tribes to establish Israel. There were 12 apostles to establish and to further the ministry of Jesus. The number 12 equates to the number of order, the number of government, and the number of establishment for what God is trying to do. So I find it so interesting and so ironic that in the formation of the seventh temple, here in Acts 2, you find 12 distinct orders that must be in operation in the seventh temple in order for God to move and for God to manifest like he's supposed to manifest or dwell in a temple. Am I making sense? I'm going to give you six today, six next week. The first ones is a bit shorter than the last ones, okay? So the first one we have, let me, I'm going to read, let me read it all, and then we'll go back. <clears throat> so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So within that, those scriptures, you have seven orders that must be established in a modern church. If a modern church wants to consistently, and I emphasize the word consistently, wants to consistently experience God moving within that body of Christ. So let's look at the first six. The way of the word. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? This is very, very important. 
the apostles' teaching was basically three-part. Number one, it was what they learned from Jesus. See, this was a new way. It was not the old way. They had to teach something that was different, that was new. They couldn't go back to the religious structure of their Hebrew or their Judaism, their Hebrew belief or their Judaism. So the first thing that they taught is what they learned from Jesus. The second thing that they taught is what was revealed to them through the Holy, through the Holy Spirit. We have to realize they did not have the Bible. These apostles had a different ministry than modern-day apostles. They're not the same. The office of the apostle today is not the same as these apostles that we're talking about. I need that. I need that kept up there, please. The apostles back then had interaction with Jesus, had a fellowship, a deep, very unique fellowship with the Holy Ghost, and had a connection with the Old Testament that we just don't have today. Today, any apostle that is trying to establish an a order through the Word of God cannot do it outside of the Holy Scriptures. No minister today should, and you should never receive any word that is not based off the Bible from someone who's claiming to be a type of minister of Jesus Christ. They did not have the Bible. They had their experience with Jesus. They had a very deep, beautiful, unique relationship with the Holy Ghost. And they had this connection to the Old Testament. And that is what became their teaching. Their experience with Jesus, a byproduct of their fellowship with the Holy Ghost, and their knowledge of the Old Testament that supported the new teachings that you find in the New Testament. I don't have time to prove all that to you this morning, but that's just what it is. So these 3,000 people that just got saved, this the, new, the, 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 the formation of the new church or the new temple was built and was based off the teaching of the apostles. Now, the teaching, the teaching of the apostles that we have today, most, for the most part, is, is the New Testament. We have the four Gospels, that's Jesus. We have the Acts, that's just the works of the apostles in the New Testament. And then after Acts, from Romans to Revelations, you have the teachings of apostolic authority. You have the teachings of apostles that was connected deeply to Jesus, the Spirit, and the Old Testament. And that... And that's what we follow today. So technically speaking, what has to be in order in our churches is an apostolic teaching, which is the teachings of Jesus, revelation of the Holy Ghost, 
a connection to the Old Testament that forms what we look at today when we read the New Testament. Does that make sense? And we cannot speak I mean, it's okay to reference them. It's okay to use them as jump-off points. But the foundation of what is taught in our church or any other church has to be the Word of God. Not a popular book. Not a weird new movement. Not a great message that you hear from a podcast. And all that, that that's okay. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking any of that. But what I'm saying, what we build our temple off of is the Word of God. Point blank, period. The Word of God. The second one is the way of fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. This is so important. So they came together. And when they came together, what developed was friendships. What developed was helps, them helping one another. What developed was them talking, sharing story, doing life together. They just didn't come together as a body of Christ. But they also came together outside the structure of, quote, the church. They fellowshiped. They were intimate. They got close to one another. Because when you are fighting darkness, when you are dealing with a world that hates you, who else are you going to go to other than your brother or sister in Christ? I'm not going to go to a worldly person and ask for prayer. Solomon in Proverbs teaches us not to go to an ungodly person for counsel or for wisdom. I'm not going to go to somebody that's half into God and half in the world and be like, I need you to agree with me. I am fighting. I am struggling. No, I'm going to go to someone that has the commonality of faith and belief and trust and experience with God that can come into an agreement or or can hold me accountable or can help lead me or can help encourage me or can help Help me just stand strong in the midst of trials and tribulations. And you find that in consistent fellowship. You have a limited amount of fellowship when you come to church. You come to church for an hour and a half or two hours. And for the most part, you come a few minutes early to get you some coffee. You're welcome. I need to keep you awake. You might hang out a few minutes after church, depending on the scenario, but 85, 90% of your time is either listening to music or listening to me talk or yell at you. And and, And if you was to start fellowshipping while I'm talking, guess what? Number one, I would have a problem with that. And number two, if it happened too loud and too much, I'd call you out in the middle of it. Like, hey, can you just shut up? I wouldn't say that, but I'd be thinking that. But I will ask you to be quiet and take your business outside if it's that important to speak over what the Holy Spirit is trying to say right now. 
So you get what I'm saying to you. There's a limited amount of fellowship that actually happens in the confines of the church. So that means fellowship has to happen outside the church. You have to connect with one another, and God establishes. The third one is the way of breaking bread. In other words, they ate together. I, I, I love this one. How many of you love to eat? Can I get an amen? We love to eat. Now, eating is a very personal and intimate uh, interaction, right? I mean, sometimes you're eating and, you know, like, I, I've been taught a southern way. When you eat, you don't talk. And if you have to talk when you eat, you cover up. But there's some people ain't been taught that way. And you ask them a question when they got some fried chicken in their mouth, guess what? You're going to hear the answer and you're going to see all that fried chicken chop. Yeah, yeah, I, I went down to the car dealership the other day. And if you're not careful, they're going to spit out some of that chicken breast right upon your lip. And just to keep cool, you're going to act like it don't affect you. You're going to be like, you're going you're to kind of be, be all nice about it and be like. But on the inside, you're like, you disgusting joker. You just spit on me. Don't you use some manners? So. When we eating together, it gets all intimate. Or sometimes, you know, we, we, we eating and we, we down some cream spinach or we down some salad. We, we have some greens and you're sitting there talking to somebody and someone all of a sudden interruption. They'd be like, oh, oh, hold on a second. And you're like, what? They're like, you got something big and green right down your front teeth. And, and it's embarrassing. But at the same time, you're like, well, thank you very much. Give me a second. And you, like that, that's intimate. Or you take a bite of a big old jerk juicy a hamburger and you get some of that mustard or some of that mayo. How many of you like mayo? Oh, some people don't like mayo. I love me some mayo. And that little, yeah, that, that, that little mustard or that mayo kind of gets on the corner of your mouth. Now, I can't stand talking to somebody and seeing some yellow or white junk on the side of their mouth. I'm like, I, I can't even hear what you're saying. You might be giving me a revelation from God, but I'm getting a, give, I'm getting a revelation of nastiness. And I have to stop you. I have to stop you. And I have to be like, hey, man, you, you got a little bit of mustard right there. You need, you, need, you need to wipe that off. Eating is intimate. You get up in people's business. You see into people's eyes. And eating causes our body to make funky noises sometimes. There are some cultures, if you don't burp after you eat, that means you didn't enjoy the meal. <laughs> Amen. That ain't nothing. So my point, so they broke bread together. So what this teaches us is they set aside time to really get to know one another. It teaches us that the early church had intimate interaction. Not just to, hey, how you doing? Not just to, I'm praying for you. Not just, well, let's join hands and let's agree together. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. That's number two. But they actually set aside time to break bread together. What's also beautiful about this, when you break bread together, someone is on the serving end. Someone is on the receiving end. 
And when you serve and when you receive, the equation of that is intimacy. Rarely do you have everybody serving and no one receiving, right? Like if you come over to my house, I'm going to, and and food is involved, I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to make sure you're served well. And you're going to receive that. And but because of my serving and because of your receiving, we have this beauty of intimacy that begins to occur. So when we get together and we eat with one another, it goes deeper than fellowship. You have servitude, you have receiving, and you have intimacy. And when you have that working together, you have hearts and minds and emotions that's just becoming stronger and stronger and stronger together. The fourth one is the way of prayers. They prayed. It was not an offshoot of their faith. It was an integral part of their faith. They saw Jesus do it. The apostles did it. It's what actually initiated the formation of the last two temples. Because it says there was 120 of them praying waiting for the promise. And we see that the church, after the formation, did it. Whenever they would go through trials and tribulations, a part of the first few steps that they would take was prayer. Paul and Silas was thrown into prison. Instead of complaining, they praised and prayed. The early church was told to stop preaching or they would be persecuted. They came together and they prayed. They prayed for boldness. The Bible says the earth shook and they received the spirit of boldness. Jesus was on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's a prayer. Father, why have you forsaken me? That's a prayer. Jesus declaring it is finished. That's a prayer. Before Jesus was was tortured, beaten, arrested, he was praying in the garden, Garden of Gethsemane. There was so much anguish in his prayers that he physically sweat, sweated blood. He asked his followers, would you please pray for me or with me, excuse me. They were a little bit too tired. But you see the emphasis of prayer. John, the apostle, before he got the visions of revelation, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What was he doing in the spirit on the Lord's day? Now, the Bible doesn't directly say this, but I directly believe it. So, again, it's my opinion. I honestly believe that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day praying. And then all of a sudden the vision came. Praying was just as much a part of their life as eating was. I've been blessed to be a part of a praying family. I was raised living off the land. Hunt, fish. 
raise your food, harvest your food. So when you come from a family that is independent like that, and, you know, we lived out in the country away from just a small Mississippi town. When you live like that, you, you just don't go to normal resources when something happens like other people do. Like when, when you live like that, if you get sick, you don't go to the doctor. You deal, you deal with your sickness the way that you can. Like I, I rarely, rarely, rarely went to the doctor as a kid. But what I consistently over and over and over again experienced is when something happened, the family praying in the name of Jesus. The baby would have a high fever. They would pray in the name of Jesus. The baby would get stung by a yellow jacket in which they were allergic to, and all of a sudden their airways closed up and they swole up really bad. All of a sudden, before running to the doctor, there was a family prayer in the name of Jesus. I ran into the bumper of a car and I shoved my front teeth up inside my gums. The first thing they did was pray. My dad, I've went, so I'm, I'm 47 years old. I really didn't know what my dad was doing until I got close to a teenager. But I remember it in Mississippi in my tween years, the emphasis on prayer. So I've witnessed, I have, I've had knowledge now going on uh, over, let's say, close to 40 years of my dad going to the church. And one of the first things he doing, praying. I remember hearing my mom speaking in tongues outside of her bedroom on a regular basis or times she would be silently praying and I would barge in like most boys do. And then all of a sudden my mom weeping and having a moment with Jesus and then I feeling so shocked and like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just interrupted a sacred moment. I've been blessed to be raised in a praying family. I know what it means for prayer to be as natural as eating does. Food was a major part of us as a family, not just in the sense of eating it or sustenance. It was a very major aspect of our family, how we obtained it, what we did with it, and how we gave it away. Very important, but I can honestly say how I was raised. I was raised where prayer unto Jesus was just as important, important as hunting that deer, catching that fish, Raising that garden or having a family meal together. Prayer was a way of life for my family. And I can sit here and I can give you story after story that because of that prayer, my family's life has experienced miracles, signs and wonders, God moving, God establishing, God saving, and God blessing way beyond what we deserve as a family. Because of prayer. Prayer has to be as important as food. And it was just as important to them. And it became a way of life. And that leads us into number five. I'll be quick, you guys. I know I'm keeping you a little bit longer today. We're almost 1130. I can't promise, but I'll try to get you out of here in five minutes. You don't have number five without number four. 
Number four, prayer. Number five is the way of signs and wonders. To the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many, can I hear you say many? Sorry for my left side, you're right. And many wonders and signs, these are miracles, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. One of the ways for the seventh temple to function is through the power of miracles. There has to be miracles today. Paul, what city did he go to? It was Corinth. Paul, I'm going a bit blank. Mars Hill. Paul was debating with spiritualists and and uh, like uh, oh the term I'm going blank. I'm sorry. He was on Mars Hill's. Give me basically arguing the point of the gospel. He gave a wonderful expression of the gospel, but yet only only very few people came to the knowledge of Christ at Mars Hill. He left Mars Hill and went to Corinth, which was a very, very paganistic, extremely sexual, very perverted, very lustful. Uh, There in Corinth, inside the temple at Corinth, they had over a thousand temple prostitutes. That's why their church was packed every day. They worshiped by having sex with many partners in many ways. And Paul went into that city. And one of his statements was this. I don't come to you with persuasive words from man, but I come to you by the power of the Holy Ghost with signs and wonders. I find it extremely interesting that his experience before this moment was him trying to be very intellectual and trying to intellectually change the mind of philosophers. That's the word I was looking for. Of At that day, their type of philosophers and spiritualists, and he had very little success. But he left Mars Hill, went into Corinth, and it was like, I don't come to you arguing. I don't come to you with intellect. I don't come to you with great words of wisdom. But I come to you by the power of the Holy Ghost with signs and wonders. If there's one thing that's going to change the heart and the mind of a non-believer, it is when God produces a sign and a wonder through the hands of his children in the case and by the need of someone that can experience the power and the miracle of Almighty God. We have to believe in miracles, we have to pray for miracles, and we have to expect miracles. It is the way. It wasn't just for then. It is for today. It is in the New Testament. 
The New Testament is not a historical book for how the apostles, the apostles of then operated. The New Testament is a guideline for how we are to live today. And the New Testament says that we will operate in the power and the gifts of the Holy Ghost with signs and wonders following. Look at someone and say, it's the way. And then number six, my end. You guys go ahead and come on out. I really like the song, the Larry last song that Nikki did. I think that was pretty sweet. So if you guys can plan on that. This, This is a very practical one. Let's read it. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And this, this, is, this is so powerful. Now, Westside uh, has done an amazing job at this. They were selling, selling their possessions. Sorry, you guys. And belongings. Distributing or giving out the proceeds to all as any had need. They were there to help meet one another's needs. Now, the modern version of that, it can, but it doesn't have to be us going selling something. Some of you need some junk to sell. You probably got a garage full of junk. Yes. But in a modern day context, we don't have to go get rid of stuff to give stuff. Because maybe you have the resources just to give anyway. And I'm not talking about your tithe. Your 10% goes to the church. It's God's way to support his church. Point blank, period. Your 10% should go nowhere except your local church. How do you expect your church to be blessed and to do what God's called it to do if you don't give your tithe? And what's a shame that only 10 to 15% of you give your tithe consistently. Yeah, but we won't go on that. This is an offering. This is above and beyond your tithe. This is when a need arises. And you supply the resources that maybe you really have or maybe you really don't have. Why would you sell something to help meet somebody's needs? Because you don't have the resources in the bank to give somebody the need, to to help someone with their needs. In my life, you know, I've done all type of adventure sports. And honestly, most of those sports we did not have the money for. So I have bought and I have sold so many resources to support my next adventure. I sold a dirt bike for scuba diving. That was a mistake. I should not have done that. That was stupid. After I dove about three times, I was like, this is boring. Why did I sell my dirt bike? Marcus, it was a 2003 YZ250 that had only 15 hours on it. It was, a, it was like a jewel of a bike. And I bought it for $1,700, dude. I sold it for $2,000. I moved to Texas and I needed a good hog gun. I sold my scuba diving gear and I bought me a 
4570 government. If you don't know anything about guns, that gun puts out a 400 grain bullet. It's used by bush pilots in Alaska when they land in the bush and they got a bear coming at them. It actually looked like a little Daisy BB gun, literally. But it was no Daisy BB gun. It was like a cannon. My wife had her 40th birthday. I needed about five or $600 to do the party I wanted to do. I'm the husband, you guys. I sold my little cannon to pay for the adventure of my wife's 40th birthday. What am I saying? I'm saying when you don't have resources for something, but there is a need that comes your way, you are so committed to the need. You're so committed to the person. You love them so much that you are willing to sell a resource to help a need. Why did I love my, I loved, I don't have it now. I loved my 4570. Oh, it was a brood of a gun. It would kick you like a mule. But I loved my wife, and I wanted her to have a fun 40th more than I loved my 45.70. So I unloaded one of my resources to be a blessing to her. I better have, because she went all out for my 40th birthday, and I wasn't going to be done by her. You hear what I'm saying? And, 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 and we see one thing, but... I really see several things here in this, the point that we're on. We see that they sold resources to help one another's need. But what I see, I see that they loved one another so much that they was willing to sacrifice something that meant something to them to help the person they loved with the need that they had. That's that's love. Why was this church? This church was powerful. Oh my God, it was powerful. And the underlining reason that it was so powerful is because they truly loved one another. And they were willing to sacrifice for each other. And guess what? It's It's the way. It's the way. What greater love than what greater love one has than for one to lay down his life, his resources for another. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope God spoke to you personally through this message and continues to encourage you throughout the coming weeks.